Welcome to Nightlight. Just listen to these scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, 1. Pray for all men. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21, 23, 32. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he should repent. And then from the book of Wisdom, chapter 5, verse 15, the hope of the wicked is like dust, which is blown away by the wind. Who are the wicked? Matthew 7, verse 11, most of us can quote, If you, being evil, still give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? There are several words in Hebrew for the word evil or wicked. If you look at all the verses that refer to them, you will come to the conclusion that we're all evil and we're all wicked. Most of us know the Roman road, so-called, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and There is none that does righteousness, no, not even one. And the entire second chapter of Romans is written to help us understand that none of us is so pure, especially religious people, that we are in any position to condemn others. But even greater than that are the words of the Lord Jesus himself, do not judge so that you will not be judged, Matthew 7, 1. But then Jesus also says in John seven twenty four, stop judging what you see outwardly, but judge righteously. So we are clearly told to not judge, and we are also clearly told to judge righteously. Now there's no contradiction here, obviously. Trying to reduce this issue to a simplistic black and white question is the very thing Jesus was warning us not to fall into. Are we to judge or are we not to judge? Claiming we are never to judge anything for any reason in the name of thou shalt not judge is utterly ludicrous and doesn't really deserve much of an answer. We know uh, it clearly means that we're not to sit in superior self-righteous criticism of anyone. But we are to judge between what is right and what is not, because that's a simple necessity of existence. It would take far too much space and time to adequately examine the finer points of the meaning behind the word evil. English is a poor language in, in some ways, in that it tends to squeeze too many ideas into one word. Love, I guess, is the quickest example that we could all turn to. Uh, We are so overusing the word love that it's beginning to lose its meaning. Well, evil is another word that suffers from this problem. When Jesus asks, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to you? He is not saying, quote, If you who are loathsomely wicked can still do good things, how much more will God who is not loathsomely wicked do good things for you? That's not 
what's being communicated here. The word for evil, poneros in Greek, properly understood is better translated as worthless or hindered by terrible burdens. Jesus is saying, if even under the terrible load of worthless toil which your life consists of, you still can find a way to give good things to your children, well then how much more will your Heavenly Father, who is not useless and is not hindered by such toil, how much more will he give good things to you? But we tend to think of the word evil in only one dimension, don't we? The worst definition we can conjure up is always what we think of when we think of the word evil. To be evil is to be like the devil. So, therefore, many people tend to think of themselves and or others, mostly others, as devils. We understand that all have sinned, yes, and that includes ourselves. And we understand that all of us are capable of doing all kinds of wrong. But we don't have to live for very long to see that there are some people who are a great deal worse at that than others. And those people are called in Scripture the wicked. If you look up the words evil and wicked and trace their etymology, you will see that they are often interchangeable. But at the same time, you will run across this question. Is there any difference between an evil and the wicked? For that difference has always been present in the language as a concept because it is present in the human race as a fact. The basic idea is that of being bent. Now we have words in English that help us illustrate this. Wicker furniture, for instance, is furniture that is made by bending materials into a certain form. The wick on a candle is the part of the candle that bends. We also speak of our having certain bents in our nature for good or for ill, usually for ill. Or we hear someone say, man, that was twisted. Same idea. We are all bent or twisted or deformed from what we were intended to be. But though we are bent, we can choose to not give place to that bentness or at least not seek to increase it. In Hebrew, there is reference to what's called the good inclination, the Yitzar Tov, or the evil inclination, the Yitzhar Hara. We all have both inclinations. The one you feed and yield to will overcome the one you neglect. To say it rather simplistically, we don't have time here to unpack all this as it should be better understood, but you still get the idea. Even those of us with deeply wounded pasts who may have shameful compulsions are aware of being able to choose against our worst inclinations, at least sometimes. There's a difference between having a bent nature and of aggressively, even joyfully, pursuing to bend it even more. The aggressive pursuit of this extreme bentness is translated as the word iniquity. Jesus does not say, depart from me, you who are bent. He says, 
Depart from me, you who are workers, energizers, propagators of iniquity. You who regularly practice at, work at, living and generating iniquity. That which is the opposite of God's intention and order, opposite of the way he intended creation to be. So it's right to say that the wicked and evil are both bent, and we are all therefore wicked and evil. We're all bent. But though we all have a bent in our nature, not everyone chooses to follow that bentness and to seek to make it their replacement for reality. Not everyone tries to go from being bent to bending everyone and everything it can through willful, cruel, heartless, monstrous arrogance. But there are those who obviously do that. And they are who the Bible calls the wicked. Well, what's the destiny of the wicked? What's the end result of those who choose to become the wicked? Here are just a few references of many we could cite. Isaiah chapter 57 Verses 20 and 21 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Proverbs 4.19, The way of the wicked is in darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Proverbs 12.11, The wicked shall be filled with evil. In Psalm 34, verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked. So the wicked churn inside with evil and are driven into deeper darkness by evil, continue to stumble through it from one level of evil to another till they are completely filled with evil, and it will finally slay them. If you take all those verses, that's really what you come up with. I believe it's right to say that even though there are scriptures that seem to call upon God to destroy the wicked, or that even declare that he will do so, it's actually evil itself that becomes its own punishment. Proverbs chapter 1 is a poetic image of wisdom crying out to the foolish, whom you might think of as the wicked in training. Wisdom calls to them to listen to her. It's a great mistake to interpret her mockery of their final destruction as representing the heart of God. It's a statement of fact that apart from God's mercy and intervention, their eventual ruin is as certain to come about as the eventual rising of the sun. That's a mechanical law of reality. It's the way things just work. But it is not a description of the heart of God toward the souls caught in the intrepid mechanics of evil. God has told us his heart about the wicked, and Proverbs chapter 1 is not it. Proverbs 1 is meant to represent the natural result that will always come when any person refuses godly wisdom and embraces foolishness. When wisdom says, I will laugh at you when your calamity comes, this is not meant to underscore the inevitable intrepid force of right that will run over a fool like a freight train with no sensitivity to to the fool's cry of remorse and think that that's the way God feels about him too. 
it says in verse 31 that the foolish or the wicked will eventually become filled with the fruit of their own way. They will lose any ability to even see that what they are doing or producing is utterly destructive and that they will be destroyed by their own evil. This is the absolute unavoidable destiny of the wicked. It is an inevitable thing. And as surely as the word of God has said so, and as surely as the word of God has framed reality to work as it does, that's the way things are. We should both take comfort in the fact, that fact, but at the same time be wary also of the fact that there's a higher law than the laws of mechanical reality, which we've just been describing from Proverbs chapter 1. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 8 when he says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. There is a law of sin and death. We've just been describing it. It's merciless. It is why it says that it will, poetically speaking, laugh at you when your calamity finally comes. But the wonderful good news in the universe since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is that there is a higher law enacted through the cross that has the power to supersede the lower law of sin and death. And we who are called to join with God as kings and priests under our great king have the power to counter the law of sin and death if we will do it. And for the sake of the wicked, we must do it. Because, just like all of us, for the wicked, there is no other hope. Let's take a closer look at the wicked. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 19. Let's begin with verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, remember what we said about the word iniquities? Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Remember the word iniquities. Keep it in mind. This is not referring to people who are trying but failing in some way to do right. No. The prophet tells us exactly who he's referring to and what the iniquities are that have God holding these people away from him. They're very serious and horrible. Verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers are filled with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered iniquity. Verse 4, none calls for justice, none pleads for the truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. See, this word iniquity keeps coming back over and over. Their feet run to do evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. It's bad enough to have blood, but they shed innocent blood. Verse 8 says, The way of peace, shalom, which is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of all goodness. The way of embracing goodness they have not known. 
There is no justice in their activities. Drop down to verse 13. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and rebellion against him, conceiving and uttering from their core words of falsehood. Now, verse 13 is a description of a people who are seeking to utterly destroy good and replace it with a counterfeit reality of demonic evil. Verse 14, judgment, righteous judgment, is turned away backwards, and justice stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street, and equity, that is sound reasoning regarding fair treatment of others, equity cannot even enter. If we reduce these words down to their essence, we end up basically with this. The wicked are those who are gleefully running to lie and even kill. They will do whatever is necessary to twist the courts to accomplish their goals. Lying is their normal means of communication. Their ultimate goal is to overthrow God's order and God himself. Does this sound like any group you can think of in the earth today? Now, let's look at a problem. Arrogance disguised as boldness. Unless we live under a rock, we know all this that I've just been describing all too well. But before we can move forward to our aim of praying for the wicked, remember that's our goal, is to learn to pray for the wicked, we need to stop here and examine a real problem. We've already stated that there's a difference between our all-too-human failings, which the scripture refers to as evil, and the willful chosen pursuit of evil for evil's sake by the wicked. But I find often when teaching this subject that almost inevitably someone will bring up the fact that we need to be careful not to judge the obviously wicked, for we are all evil. But let's get this bolder out of the way so we can move forward. Yes, we are all capable of evil. And that awareness should keep us from self-righteous arrogance, for sure. Though we have stated it already, I don't think we can say it too often, maybe. Our great danger in confronting the wicked is the trap of becoming pharisaically self-righteous. And that is a danger. You become what you don't forgive. You become what you hate. In a certain sense. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine told of an elderly lady who burst into his office on Saturday morning. She was normally the picture of aged sweetness and godliness, but on this particular morning, she looked terrible. She explained that she had joined with the others who met and prayed in front of the local abortion clinic. The director of the abortion mill came out, shaking his fist and cursing at them. All of a sudden... A burst of rage at him came up from somewhere inside of her, and she said, Pastor, I wanted to reach over and rip his throat out with my bare hands, and I swear I nearly did it. We all need to be wary of not only our own self-righteousness, 
but of our own potential for evil behavior, especially done in the name of righteousness. A special kind of danger is present when we are doing evil in order to fight evil. We're clearly told in more than one place, like Romans 12, 21, do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. But there's also another opposite danger from this. And that is the danger of running away from the battle completely in the name of keeping peace. So let's look for a moment at self-condemnation disguised as humility. Instead of keeping us from arrogance, I find an over, overly cautious concern against self-righteousness keeps people from effective prayer or action against evil. The religious spirit puts on a clerical collar and in hushed sanctimonious whispers tells the concerned person who's wanting to do something to stand against evil not to get on their high horse and think they can be effective against evil. After all, who do they think they are? Quote, you don't want anyone to look at your sins too closely, do you? You need to stay humble and not become aggressive. You might fall into spiritual pride. Best to stay home and pray quietly. So you better walk softly through this subject. Now I understand that struggle. I vividly remember like it was yesterday. Walking up the front steps of my freshman college dorm in 1973 where a radio sitting in a nearby dorm open window was blaring the news. The Supreme Court of the United States had arbitrarily and unlawfully declared that the murder of unborn babies was now the law of the land. In the years to come, on many college campuses, the murder of unborn babies uh, was a subject that I confronted in public venues and, and, and stood against abortion. But what I never mentioned in those days was the memory of what exactly passed through my mind on that day in 1973. As a college sophomore who claimed to follow Jesus, some might say what I thought that day was merely the voice of some demon attacking my mind. Others, though, would more accurately agree with me that it was my own thought. It really doesn't matter what the source of the thought was. I welcomed the thought and even leaned into it. As the announcer reported that the killing of babies was now legal, the thought that breezed through my mind was this. Well, if that's true, then all the sins I'm attracted to will become more open and more available also. So in the daylight, I stood against abortion, but at night, I pursued my own sins that were in spiritual agreement with the core of abortion. And every time I participated in my own brand of sin, which had nothing directly to do with abortion, I was celebrating the same spirit as that of abortion. My memory of that terrible fact about myself haunted me. And in my inexperienced early 20s, I tried to expunge 
the pain of that fact about myself by being even more confrontive and more harsh and combative. In encounters all across America and then later in Europe, I fancied myself as battling for the truth against the murder of children. But I made little headway because my own spirit was not clean. I was not uh, free to really do damage to the enemy's kingdom till I fully recognized my own sinful participation in the horror of abortion that I had, uh, once I had confessed it and repented of it, then I became fully free of its contamination and power could flow through me with reality. No, I had never participated in an actual abortion. But I had surely engaged with its evil as if I had every time I pursued my particular brand of sexual sin. And as long as I failed to face my own sin, I unconsciously tried to make up for it with righteous zeal, but therefore came across as what I was, a self-righteous superior Pharisee. But once I was free from my own sin and learned to stand, not in my own false goodness, but in the love of the truth and the blo- under the blood of Jesus, then I became free to speak with power and effectiveness, but also with humility and compassion for those I was addressing. I never had that compassion before, so long as I was covering my own sin with religious rhetoric. And I believe, by the way, Most of the church is guilty of coming at unbelievers in self-righteous rhetoric like mine, and therefore we are creating a deeper chasm between us and the very people we're trying to reach. When we refuse lies, especially religious lies, the lies we use to cover our own sins, we then have power to stand for the truth. For look at this next verse as it describes another of the symptoms of why evil is taking ground in a nation. That is the failure to speak truth without disguise or compromise. Verse 15, truth completely fails, Isaiah says. It would be a study all of its own to trace the trail of lies that has become a normal part of our culture and most especially religious culture. Our mouth is only effective for prayer if it is also effective for truth. To be effective for truth means we must stand first in the basic, most vital truth about ourselves. First, that we are guilty, yes, but then also that we are forgiven, and not just forgiven, justified. And not just justified, but raised to sit with Christ in the place of spiritual authority as kingdoms of priests, as a kingdom of priests. Kings rule, priests intercede. Once we are clear on what we truly believe about our own past and our own redemption from, from our past, then we are unleashed. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one's even chasing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Our forgiven past should help equip us even more effectively rather than hinder us. I have hurt many people in my past. 
Many I know by name. Most I don't. The ones whose names I know I'm able to name before the Lord. The memory of them used to shut me down in prayer because I had not truly embraced the forgiveness of the cross. But once I willed to believe his word, regardless of how painfully my feelings replayed the memory of my own sins, I could then stand in the power of the blood of the cross and begin to truly, with compassion and energy, proclaim that same forgiveness and mercy on behalf of those I prayed for. There's so much more to say about praying for those from our past uh, that we have wounded, and that's really not our purpose here. It's been addressed in other places. I'll give you the location for how to find that at the end of this message. But there's a cost to standing for this truth. Isaiah goes on to also say in chapter 59, verse 15, whoever departs from evil makes himself a target of the wicked. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in his list of evil characteristics of those at the end of the age, that among those evils is this one. They will hate you for not being evil. Or the King James Version says, they will be despisers of those who are good. Many have been slandered, which is a kind of murder, or even physically murdered because they stood against the wicked. In our more naive past, we might think that this topic refers only to verbal abuse, and that that has its place, of course, but it has become clear to any who look honestly at things as things have moved more and more toward the dark in our culture, that though verbal abuse is real murder, not only here but around the world and in other countries, Christians are being terribly abused, but it's also happening now in our own country. The body count connected to some high-profile politicians is rising. But I will say this for any who are not awake to the degree of evil that we're dealing with now. It is vital that you face head-on that we are in a time of moral, sexual, political, and spiritual darkness like no time in all of our history. We cannot pray effectively against evil unless we know and believe what we are praying about is a real thing. Too many of our brothers and sisters in our own so-called land of the free are right now this minute serving unjust jail time for standing while we all failed to stand with them in their battle. Then there is also the underground evil. I've been wrestling with this issue now for nearly 50 years. I've seen things and encountered people in situations that were very dark. So much of what is being uncovered recently, which is very difficult for ordinary people to stomach, I've had to face alone or only with a handful of fully aware servants of God who were on the front lines and working in the back alleys of our culture in the underbelly of the cities and now in the countryside. I suppose I should be grateful that most people are not cavalier when they learn just how anti-human 
the demonic underbelly of Hollywood or the music industry or other variations of this and all these other related strongholds, how really bad it, it is. I should be thankful that people are shocked. We should be wary when we become so familiar with horrible evil that we have become unshockable. Jesus told us to be wise as serpents, Matthew ten sixteen. Paul said that when it comes to practicing evil, we should be as ignorant as infants. But when it comes to understanding evil, we should be adults, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, he says, for us to watch and be on guard, stand fast in the faith, and be courageous like grown-up people and not like children. We should never be willfully naive. Now, Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, we should not even speak of those things that are done in secret. But we're now living in a situation where that level of once hidden darkness done in occult and sexually perverted secret was paraded at the halftime performance of the last Super Bowl. We must learn to hate evil. I do not believe you can effectively pray for the wicked unless you hate their evil. The more we love God and the more he entrusts us with greater understanding of how things really are, the more we will learn to hate evil. Psalm 97 verse 10. Let us who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Now, I could I could go off on this in ways that I don't think would be helpful. I want to give you credit enough to be adult enough to know what I'm talking about without me going into ghastly, un, unbearably painful details that are becoming more and more, thankfully, publicly known. Um, but let's move on. Let's get to the main thrust of this message. What is the heart of God for the wicked? When we read the description of the wicked in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 16, we might expect to get to verse 16 and find a declaration of vengeful wrath against them, but we don't. This is what we find. Verse 16 says, And the Lord looked and was greatly displeased and wondered. Can you imagine that it says God wondered? God was amazed that there was no intercessor. God was amazed, not so much at the wicked, but at the absence of the righteous who would be grieved enough and burdened enough by the wicked that they would cry out in intercession. So it says God came himself and stepped in to stop evil. If you read the rest of the chapter, yes, there is reference to divine wrath and judgment included. But that is not God's first and foremost response. We have addressed this more in other sessions. 
so I won't try to repeat it here. Again, I'll give you references to go to them later. But let me say in summary that because of what Jesus did at the cross, we who are his are united with him in his intercessory work. And standing in the power of the cross, we join with him as his kings and priests. And we take on the challenge of prayer for the wicked. How then do we do that? Let's look at the task of interceding for the wicked. I want to repeat the verses that I just referenced in our opening, but I want to put them in their full context. First Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. Pray for all men. All means all. But let's read it in context. Pray for all people. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks are to be made for all people, especially for kings and all that are in any kind of authority. And what you're praying for in regards to them is so that you may, you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to all in due time. I don't think you need any commentary on these statements. They are clear and they are very strong. We're being told God's will. What is God's will? It is that all people be saved. We are told that our prayers are necessary to build an atmosphere in which peace and truth can flourish. We are told to pray especially for those in authority because their influence for good or ill will determine the overall atmosphere. If there is chaos, it's a prayer failure. If there's peace and truth, it's a prayer success. This may sound too simplistic for us to accept, but the fact is our present chaos is, according to these verses, the fault of a prayerless church. But that can and is being corrected, though. Thank God. That's the reason we're here. But notice verse 8. I urge, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without rage or conflict. King James Version says without doubting. That's not very clear. It's really without conflict. The historical context of this entire line of thought would be too broad for us to try to get into here. But we're not taking this one verse out of its context if we see that for whatever reason, conflict and rage may occur. If we allow it, it becomes a great hindrance to effective prayer. I do believe there's a time for holy anger in prayer, and we will discuss that later. But whenever anger and conflict are in us, it hinders the flow of intercession. 
Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, but don't sin in your anger. When it comes to praying for the wicked and being maturely aware of the work of the wicked, it is hard not to become enraged at many of the evils they perpetrate. We all know and can recite a million horrible examples, and they are being added to daily. Let's remember they are multiplying daily, partly because of the ecclesia, the church, the ruling body of God's people, in our failure to obey this very verse. We are, ex- we are changing that, but we, better get, we really better get serious about it. Let's look some more at the clearly stated will of God about all people. And all means all, even the most wicked. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, there's really no commentary needed. What is not God's will? That any should perish. What is God's will? That all will repent. So we know how to pray in line with the will of God. Let's look at one more. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 20, 21, 23, 31, and 32. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember Proverbs chapter 1? I told you that that's the word of wisdom uh, celebrating against foolishness. But that is not a revelation of the heart of God. It may be a revelation of the, of the mechanical structure of God's mind in establishing reality. But God wants us to know his heart. Here's God's heart for the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they repent. Verse 20 the soul that sins shall die. That's that mechanics we talked about. But verse 21, but if the wicked will turn from his sins, he shall live. Verse 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? No, I want them to live. Verse 31 and 32, why will you die? For I have no pleasure in the death of them that die, says the Lord. So turn from your sin and live. Now we've, I don't know if there's any possible way to state what the will of God is for anything. Any stronger than those verses state that it is not God's will that anybody should perish. So 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15 says, This is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. With all due respect to wise and honest exegetes and commentators, Sometimes they simply try to unsay what God has said and leave us empty and confused. What do these verses say? What do they mean? 
They say God wants the whole world to be saved. They say we are to pray in that direction, including praying for the most wicked. They say that we pray according to his will, then we know he hears us, and we get what we pray for. But the church sadly does not believe this and often then does not pray at all. We are examining here how to correct our lack of vision and our prayerlessness. What if we were to begin to go after the wicked in prayer? How would that look? Well, it cannot mean that we all just say a prayer or two for all the world to be saved and then sit back and rest in the promise that we prayed God's will and we know if we pray God's will, he hears us and he will answer, so let's go get a pizza. Job has been done. No, obviously there is a strategy that we must discern. There is, once that strategy is discerned, there's a battle to be waged, and at the right time and right place, there is truth to be proclaimed and life to be demonstrated. So this is not just some mystical, invisible war that we carry on in prayer that has no ramifications in the outflow of everyday life and interaction with people. And we'll examine those points in more detail in uh, our next session. So let's review what we've covered so far and try to be sure that we are getting the aim of this first session. Number one, yes, we know from our own experience as well as from the clear statement of Scripture that we are all sinners. Now, that word has become so religiously connotated that we may need to find a different way to say we're sinners not because we need to lighten the truth, but on the contrary, because we need to strengthen that truth. We are all wrong inside, and we are all guilty of proving that by various ways of behavior, and we're all capable of great degrees of wrong. Number two, that being true, still most of us do not embrace evil as a lifestyle. Most of us do not seek to propagate evil and to overthrow goodness, but there are increasingly those who do. Number three, we need to keep our own evil in view so we do not become self-righteous judges, but we also need to not so focus on our own sinfulness that we paralyze ourselves with false guilt. We must hate evil and seek to resist it, not by battling evil with evil, but as Scripture states many times, by overcoming evil with good. Some evils are so horrible that we will be tempted to hate the wicked. But when we give in to hatred, we are in danger of becoming what we hate. We can learn to hate wickedness to the full extent and therefore seek to rescue wicked people from its grip. That's the heart of God for them. We want God's heart, not our vengeful, self-satisfied sense of justice. Number four, wisdom states that workers of evil will eventually be destroyed by their own 
evil. Evil is its own punishment. That is the inevitable, unavoidable fact in Scripture. It's called in Scripture the law of sin and death. But number five, there's a greater law that supersedes the law of sin and death. It's set in motion by the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. So number six, God set the law of life in motion because God does not want the wicked to be destroyed by their own evil. He wants to rescue them. He wants them to turn back towards life away from death. Number seven, so those of us who belong to Jesus can enter into God's heart along with him and set the law of life in motion to salvage the wicked from the law of sin and death. The force that does this is intercessory prayer, which sets in motion forces for good that can capture and rescue the wicked. Well, we need to stop here and take time to digest what we've been considering and ask the Lord to search our hearts before we can move forward into deeper levels of intercession. Are we honest about our own sin while at the same time being resistant to self-condemnation and legalism? Are we honest about our own anger at the wicked Are we honest about our own self-comforting indifference toward horrendous evil? Do we flip the channel or turn the page or change the subject when certain issues come up that the Holy Spirit wants us to look at or face or enter into in prayer? In our next time together, we will try to honestly face these questions more deeply. And we will do our best to respond with hopefully some wise directives on how to deal with it. But at some point, we will have to stop looking inward and face the battle outwardly, just as it is, and then take steps necessary to become engaged in that battle by entering into real prayer. I've said it over and over. You'll notice if you go to the website There's probably 25 or 30 hours of lectures on prayer. Nothing to me is worse than talking about prayer but never praying. A lot of this this issue that I'm talking about here, we can deal with on our own, alone with the Lord. But at some point, I would strongly suggest that you share this burden with at least one other person or a small group of like-minded people who care about this as much as you do. It doesn't have to be a large group. In fact, it's best to be only a, a small group that you can, where you can share and have some degree of intimacy and, and focused uh, prayer, prayer time together. Too many prayer meetings are slowly choked to death by well-meaning people who don't know how to intercede and end up diluting the the prayer time by bringing in all sorts of unfocused prayer requests of their own personal 
nature that dissipate the group's focus. Now that level of prayer has its place. I'm not criticizing that at all. But praying for the wicked is not the place to bring up your cousin's upcoming operation or whatever. With all due respect for such prayer concerns, keep things in their proper focus. This is best achieved and maintained by joining a select group of folks with whom you can share your insights and your burdens and your struggles and your discernment and your self-discoveries and your vision for prayer that is unique to the battle of praying for the wicked. For some of what we must engage against in intercession is so dark, I'm not talking about the prayer being dark, obviously, I'm talking about the subject in, in, that we're praying into. Can, some of the subjects can be so dark and depraved that it's not wise to attempt to wrestle with it on our own. And as I have addressed in other messages, I think we have a six-part series called uh, Spiritual Warfare uh, that deals with the danger that some Christians get into of trying to wrestle with principalities and powers and directly challenge them and take them on as uh, as if they are able to take them on and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I won't try to address that here except to say that um, I have known many, many Christians who have been terribly damaged, shipwrecked, and even lost, lost their lives because they have, uh, in some kind of spiritual arrogance, attempted to wrestle directly with principalities and powers on their own. And that's all I'll say about that. You don't need to do that. You don't, you, you, you don't, you're not called to do that, to do that, and you're not equipped to do that. But we need each other. And I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but I do mean it to be at least a, a wake-up call to us not to get into areas where we are either not protected by the love and support of others or by clear directives of Scripture where we're getting ourselves into territory that we're not able to handle. Uh, I don't mean, like I said, I don't mean this to be harsh, but I've just based it on years of experience. And so that's enough said. If you want more details on praying as a governing body of the ecclesia or more on the dynamics of prayer in general itself or uh, concerning being healed and cleansed of your past so that you will be free to exert ruling authority in prayer, then go to mclaneministries.org. Make sure you spell it correctly, M-C-L-E-A-N, ministries.org. Then click on Nightlight Newsletters. Go to the newsletter archives and you can access several hours of teaching on prayer, healing the past, and many, many other subjects. But especially in regard to what we've just been talking about, try to give a listen to a, a, a message called Ruling in the Midst of Our Enemies and another one called Prayer, Time, and Our Past. Thank you for listening. Father, we pray.
pray now for every man and woman listening to this message. You know where they are. You know the battles that they are confronted with in their particular region or the issues that they're, they're having to wrestle with uh, that, that are beyond them. And we, you know, Lord, some of them uh, know because I hear from them they, they don't have the fellowship and the support of people who are awake to these issues. I pray, Father, for uh, everyone who is lacking any kind of fellowship on that level. I pray, Father, that you will make divine appointments, cause people to meet one another, cause there to be divine connections, cause there to be a, a, a clear awakening to this call to pray for the wicked. We pray, Father, uh, that you will strengthen us in all goodness, strengthen our hearts with wisdom and with love and with joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we pray, Father, that we will not get pulled into focusing on darkness, but we will stand in the light and be able to rebuke the works of darkness, as you told us in in your word, not to not to focus on them or dwell in them or get weird, uh, sickly, uh, weirdly preoccupied with them. But on the other hand, Lord, um, uh, in the other direction, become so empowered by your Spirit that we we don't we don't look at the works of darkness. We reprove them and break their power. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Amen.